Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Gimp. Now that guy knows at the party. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Galaxy News Radio, your post-apocalyptic source for the truth, no matter how bad it hurts. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a film podcast by filmmakers. <coughs> God, I was so close to being done with this cough. Ugh, and gosh. then something went down the wrong tube in my throat the other day. And that caused a fit of coughing that, I don't know. I don't know if you can reopen a cough wound, but uh, something in my throat is not happy with me once again. I think you definitely can. Fair enough. Yeah. And so, yeah, we like to pick apart films in the best way possible. Uh, we try to try not to interview or, you know, interrogate movies that we don't like uh, often films that we do like, or at least one of us uh, likes. Sometimes we don't always see eye to eye uh, and those can make for really fun episodes um, as we each call each other liar and uh, you know, debase ourselves in the frustration of screaming. And so, yeah, <laughs> what a, I don't know, man. I think this, I have a ton of notes on today's episode. Um, really? I, uh, but before actually, yeah, I think before we even get into that, uh, we can touch on maybe Blumhouse mm-hmm. because I think you and I are both kind of fascinated, uh, with their business model, right? They do. We've both seen, I think Jason Blum's, I don't know if it was a Ted talk or a South by speech or, or what he did, but we've watched interviews with him where he talks about their, their process of, yeah, we only make movies that are one to $5 million and, and that's it. And that way they can take risks. Uh, they work with a lot of first time directors and that gives them an opportunity to, I don't know, make more stuff and throw stuff at the wall, creative freedom, right? If you're not dropping 150 million into uh, a single project, you don't care quite as deeply about how it's going to go. And instead of, that maybe you make 50 or 60 movies and now it's like oh we can't possibly keep track of all those instead we're going to trust someone with a vision to take that vision out and if audiences react to it we'll put it on in theaters Uh, and if not then we have other outlets that we can make our money back it's easy to make back one or two million dollars on a project if you have the network um, which of course he does yeah i don't know what do you like this model as opposed to the the big budget model or do you really care one way or another? I think that there's good, we need both to be mm-hmm. honest. I'm, I'm really glad that this exists, but we do need the high budget balls to the wall, go all out kind of uh, films as well. I mean, you can't, you can't make Apollo 13 on a million dollar budget. I'm sorry. You just can't do it. It's not possible. And anybody who says that they think they can't is, is ridiculous. Uh, and so we would be out those films, but they're brilliant at doing this because they, they do the horror genre. They specifically do horror and, and it's really easy to be scary for cheap. Hmm. You know, you just need some, you need to shoot at night most of the time, have some really interesting lighting and then leave it all to people being scared, which I think that we're ingrained to do that. Right. Like I think that a lot of actors probably like could could pull that off pretty, pretty, pretty seamlessly. And, and I think that a lot of cinematographers look at something like that at, at horror films and they think, oh, that would be fun, right? As opposed to just shooting something dramatic 
where, okay, we're going to do wide. We're going to do a close up. We're going to be, you know, have shallow depth field, all this stuff, whatever. No, we have to like really design visually to make something feel Mm -hmm. ominous. That's fun. You know, for a cinematographer, I feel like like that's, that's like what they wake up in the morning. They're like, Oh, I want that challenge. You know, instead of going and shooting a rom-com, which is like, you know, all mediums, you know, medium wides. It's like, no, let's, let's, let's challenge ourselves. Right. Um, and to be creative. And so I think a, a lot of times, you know, he could probably, Jason Blum could probably get, you know, some bigger names to do stuff like this because, you know, they're artists direct these directors that do these, you know, whether they're new people or they've been seasoned, they're artists and they want to make something unique and special, <clears throat> whether it comes off or not, that's their goal. And the same thing with cinematographers. And I think that the way that they do it is brilliant because they pick a genre that's, that's cheap to do, where you can do a lot of it. Um, be, like you, to your point, because they're not throwing so much money at the wall, they can afford to, to like give up and coming filmmakers a chance, which is so important and so awesome that Hollywood honestly can't do. Let's, let's be honest. Cause if you have a, a hundred million dollar movie and you're giving it to Joe Blow, I mean, it, that is nerve wracking. Like, why would you do that when you could have Spielberg or you could have Cameron, you know, like. No, you're going to give it to one of those guys because you know they can make blockbuster hits and you need to make that money back. But if you're spending $2 million or a million dollars on a film, you know, and your Blumhouse and you know how to market and you can get this film into a, a lot of theaters or you can get it licensed to HBO or wherever, then then you're going to, you know, you're going to make that back. You know, and you might even make it back a hundred fold. So think about that. That's the difference is like, is like, that's what makes this model so brilliant and why you and I are both such fans of them is because you can spend a hundred million dollars on a movie and you can make a timeless movie. Don't get me wrong. You know, i just said Apollo 13 earlier, it just came to my mind, but that's a timeless film. But say it does a billion dollars, a billion dollars at the box office and you spend a hundred million dollars to make it. I mean, that's 10 X that's good. That's really good return. Right. But if you spent $2 million and it made 20, that's 10x. Look at The Purge or uh, Paranormal Activity. Those are like 100x movies that they had returns on. I mean, it's it's actually, I don't know, we've had this discussion before. I don't know why even the big, the big, um, you know, Warner Brothers and stuff, they're not, you know, if they're doing this, I haven't heard of it, but I'm sure there's, they probably have some kind of version of it, you know, but it's yeah, probably I- a water. I think what? they probably like go to film festivals and look to buy uh-huh. films instead Finished of Finished films. Yeah. And they're like, Oh, right. well, we'd rather drop 5 million on, you know, whatever coming out of Sundance uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to, and we'll distribute it and we'll make our money that way instead of uh, yeah. gambling with someone. But even within that, I agree with you. I would still rather them have, you know, some little incubator where they're allowing a lot of artists to, to take some shots. Yeah, because the difference there is that the film's already made, you know, mm. the the director such as yourself has already sunk the only 50 grand, 60 grand they have into making it. Whereas, you know, if they had, if they did it like Blumhouse and they had, no, you know what, Wes, we're going to give you a million dollars to make this movie. And then we're going to put another million dollars into marketing. And you know what, we're going to make $10 million on it. I look at this and I think especially in this market, in this environment of just content, content, content because of of covid and because of you know netflix and every all these movies are going straight to streaming how is this not a thing 
you know, how is, you know, Universal and Warner Brothers still making 50, $100 million movies and then going to HBO? I don't get it. When they could make a $2 million movie and maybe make 10x on it or 20x pretty easily because it's Warner Brothers and Universal. Anyway, just like you, we're, I'm a big fan of, of Jason Blum and what he's done and what they do there. And I think they do it fantastically. I mean, not, and the thing is, to your point, not every film is going to be a hit, but that's okay because the next one might be. And if the next one is even remotely a hit, it pays for the one that wasn't, uh, you know, it's not like you're shooting avatar two and spending $300 million, you know, and, and it's gotta, it's gotta win. No, you know, we're going to make 30 movies this year. And if 10 of them win, we're in the money, you know? Yeah. It's a numbers game for them. And it's very much like, it's like the money ball version of, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of movies. Right. And you would think, you would think that someone like me, I'd be like, you know what? They're just pumping it out. I don't like it, da, da, da. Mm. but they're not, they're very good. You know, that, like a lot of the stuff they do is, is really, really good. I enjoy a lot of it. Some of it I don't, but that's okay. That's the point. You know, it's, it's, it might be, they took a chance on a, on a new director or some new actors and it just didn't work out. You know what? That's all right. You know, let's, let's give them their shot. And if they meet it, if they meet it head on, cool, then you've got somebody you could keep going back to. And if they don't, you know, all right, you know, we've got 10 others in the kiln anyway. So love it. Love them. I think it's a brilliant business model that I, if, if they weren't doing it, I, I would like, I would think that we should find some money and do it ourselves. And, and well, the other thing is that they don't have a corner on the market, mm. you know, like this kind of thing can be done. You, you, I mean, you have to have money to start out and you have to have some marketing knowledge, which I have none of, but you know, if you have that, you know, this, this can be done by any and all of the, of the studios. Completely agree. And that's one of my dreams, you know, long-term would be to, to be able to have enough money to be able to give other shots to, to artists um, yeah. and take risk. And yeah, I, it's funny. Anytime, you know, those conversations pop up, you know, what would you do if you won the lottery? Not that I play the lottery ever, mm-hmm. but that's what I would do. Some, you know, $200 million landed in my lap. I'm like, okay, I'm definitely making like 20 of my own movies, but then I'm taking that other half and I'm like, Danny Boyle, what do you want to make? And Joe Blow, Josephine Blow, what do y'all want to make? Uh, and let's let's do this because I feel like there's so many people in our own periphery that w- are talented and are waiting. Like I've been working on my own script, and I've only really worked on it because now I have a little bit of pocket change that I can actually make something. If I'd had that money ten years ago, I could have made something ten years ago. And it's all about opportunity, and it's hard, and I get that. And, uh, and all you can do is, you know, keep taking risks. But I think you said, you know, maybe the most important thing, which is Blum knows his market. He's making horror films and he knows that's the easiest thing to get people to show up and pay money for. Um, because if you can't get a big name actor, people will still show up for the horror, for the mystery. Um, and and that's a very easy sell and it's an easy way to cash in and get your money back. And while also having fun, like, this is a fun business if you're doing it right. I can't imagine working in this field and 
absolutely loathing it, right? Like why go do something else, go, go work in oil and plastics. If you really hate your life, there's a lot of money in, you know, in, in doing that stuff. Um, but if you're going to do something creative, like do a, do it in a way that you can enjoy what you're doing. Um, or else if, cause if it's only about the money, then my God, man, you've really way to ruin something. That's amazing. <laughs> right. Uh, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree, man. And, and I mean, they, he was, I won't say he's lucky because I don't like that word, even though it's, it has a lot to do with, with, you know, whether or not you succeed. Uh, and I don't know how you subscribe to it, but for me, I think that luck has a massive amount to do with it. But paranormal activity was one of, if not the first, one of the first things they did. And one of the brilliant things about doing that as a first film is that it is the literally the cheapest thing you could possibly do. Right. I mean, you just have cameras in a house that are just stationary and all you're doing is you're filming the actors and their reactions to things. And so you're spending money on staging, but you don't have to spend any money on lighting or barely any or on cinematography, you know, active cinematography that that w- that is. It was just very brilliant, you know, to do something uh, let's make something as realistic as humanly possible. You know, and at the time, piggyback. I mean, I, it was definitely well after yeah, it was uh, like the Blair six, Witch seven thing. Years after that, yeah. You know, but that was all motion. Mm-hmm. That was you know unsteady camera work. You know, you're that was what was scary was that I didn't know what what the heck was going on around me. Now it's like I can see everything around me, and that's what's scary. You take it and you make it opposite, but it's just as cheap to to make, right? And then you put it out like this thing that's that could be real. And that's what's so scary about it, is that this could be real. And they just made it they made something so cheap, but but knew how to market it. Right. And that was that was how they, you know, got the start. And then all of a sudden they're Blumhouse. Absolutely. Like whatever, 15, 20 grand that they spent on that. And they made it incredibly well. Like they use cheap technology, you know, no name actors. But it's incredibly well paced. The the visual effects are phenomenal um, and simple. Like they didn't reinvent yeah. the wheel, um, but they told a very simple story with compelling visual elements um, and believable. And stripping away all the artifice uh, really helped pull you in. That's the only movie I've been in in a theater where the audience was loud, people were laughing. And I was still completely sucked in and terrified. Like I've, I've never experienced that before. I, and I did see Blair Witch in theaters um, and it scared me for sure. But uh, that was a pretty, I don't know, obedient audience. Like we were all pretty in the movie, but paranormal activity, man, the audience was losing its mind. And I was enjoying that as well as absolutely wetting my bed. Like it was, which is crazy for you because crazy. you hate that kind of stuff. It's very much a, I need to speak to your manager kind of moment. Like <laughs> I want my money back. <laughs> want, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, absolutely, man. They, they picked the right way to come out of the gates and, and capitalize because he took all that money and, and I'm guessing, um, you know, started Blumhouse and, mm-hmm. and did what they do. God. Yeah. Genius. Yeah. And then they moved on to the purge and yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, yeah. To answer your question very longly. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I big fan. Nice. Speaking of Blumhouse, what are we doing today, man? Today we are covering uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out. Uh, if you haven't seen this film, please pause the episode, go watch it. Um, it's not streaming, but uh, you can rent it on YouTube and and uh, Apple TV and all that good stuff for like you know four bucks or something. So, 
it's definitely definitely uh worth it nice yeah we'll talk about many things i'm sure we'll we'll talk about cinematography some of the camera work and how it relates to the story look at the sunken place um, using long holds uh, we'll definitely look at some of the story and writing we're not I'm not going to really go heavy into like the metaphors and symbolism. No. That stuff has been picked apart to death and much better than I ever would have done it. Like there's so much symbolism and it's just thick. And so I don't have anything new to discuss there. Um, we will talk. I, w I do want to touch on a little bit of like social horror aspects and the rewatchability um, and some of the WTF moments. Uh, but I'm just, there's, I have nothing to add that hasn't been said a thousand times and right. like, you know, 30 minute YouTube video essays or whatever is out there. But I, I, I do want to talk about like Daniel Kaluuya. I thought, you know, he puts on a great performance. He's an incredible actor. Um, and so I just want to kind of look at some of the things um, on a technical level um, and between the lines kind of level of what he's doing that makes his performance work for this movie you know, especially since he has such a singular role as compared to everyone else around him. So yeah, we'll talk about that and other such stuff and things and stuff. I love that. Looking forward to that. Uh, quick, quick synopsis of the, of the film. A young African-American visits his white girlfriend's parents for the weekend, uh, where his uneasiness about their reception of him eventually reaches a boiling point. It's written and directed by Jordan Peele, cinematography by Toby Oliver, starring Daniel Kaluuya as Chris, Allison Williams as Rose, Bradley Whitford as Dean, uh, the dad, Catherine Keener as Missy, the mom, Caleb Landry-Jones as Jeremy, the brother, Stephen Root as Jim Hudson, Lakeith Stanfield as Andre Logan King, and Lil Ray Howery as Rob Williams, TSA. Phase one was the hypnotism. That's how they sedate you. Phase two is, is this mental preparation. It's basically a psychological pre-op. Yeah. For phase three, the transplantation. Well, partial, actually. The piece of your brain connected to your nervous system needs to stay put, keeping those intricate connections intact. So you won't be gone, not completely. A sliver of you will still be in there somewhere. Limited consciousness. You'll be able to see and hear what your body is doing, but your existence will be as a passenger. An audience. You'll live in the sunken place. Now you're in the sunken place. Yeah, that's, that's what she calls it. I'll control the motor function, so I'll be... Me. You'll be me. Good. Good. You got it quick. Good on you. Why us? Huh? Why black people? <laughs> Who knows? People want to change. Some people want to be stronger. Faster, cooler. Black is in fashion. But don't, please don't let me in with that. You know, I could give a shit what, what color you are. No. What I want is deeper. I want 
your eye, man. I want those things you see through. So, yay or nay, man? <laughs> you like is this a a good one? <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's a good one. Uh, um, you know, I liked it. I liked it okay the first time I saw it, but the second time I liked it even more. And yes, there's a lot of symbolism, you know, that's that's pretty obvious. And there's some that's not so obvious to a white guy, um, but it's probably much more obvious to to uh, uh, to a black person or person of color. But but just as a just as a film and a story, you know, I was, I was talking to a buddy of mine I went for a bike ride with uh, earlier today and t- telling him how like, you know, if you just look at this from a story point of view, it's like a very interesting story. It's like uh, this having nothing to do with, with race or anything or gender or color or anything. It's, it's just an interesting story. Uh, and, uh, and watching it again, you know, just solidified that to me, you know, it's kind of, you know, things you don't expect happen. Think some things you do expect happen, but one of the, the things that made, excuse me, that made this movie really good for me or actually just really like, like enjoyable was that it wasn't your, like your typical horror film where everyone was stupid. Hmm. It They were smart. Uh, Chris, Daniel Kaluuya's character, was smart. And he no, like he noticed stuff. It wasn't like they're going to show stuff to the, the viewers and Chris wasn't going to notice it. No, Chris noticed stuff. And he even noticed stuff maybe before. I mean, we're watching a horror film. We know something's not right. You already know that, right? So he has to learn that something is not right as well, but he doesn't ignore signs. He notices things. He pays attention. He finds things that pro- maybe we wouldn't find, you know, with the door open and finding the, 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 the pictures at, at the end. He has the foresight to call his friend a couple of times. His friend, his friend, the cool, you know, the, the comic relief, um, Rob, has the TSA guy is, br- is just awesome. He makes the movie for me. He gives Rod. Sorry. My bad. Did I say, yeah. yeah. Um, he makes the movie because otherwise it's just, you know, tense, tense, tense all the time. He's great comic relief. They bring him in a lot, actually, to break stuff up because that's just how he is. He's never going to his character is always like that. So he's never going to be serious. Even his seriousness has a lightheartedness. Uh, so they they have him. But he's smart as well. He informs chris of stuff he's like oh man you know the, the sex slave duh, 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 duh. and chris you know he'll dismiss it but at the same time it's now implanted in his brain is that a thing it, it's just a, a really brilliant dynamic that they have and they they don't make them stupid they make them smart right and they they keep from us the girlfriend uh who is it oh rose being part of it right i think we think that maybe she'd be part of like, how could she not be part of it? Right. How could she not see, you know, but I remember the first time watching it, I wasn't sure. She just played it really well. She was, you know, great actress and uh, the lines they wrote for her, the things that they had her say at those times felt real, you know, felt, felt right. She was a little dismissive at times when he's like freaking out. Like, I'm sorry if I'm with you and I have a problem and I'm thinking like something's happening, you better fucking believe me <laughs> or else, especially if we've only been dating for five months. Yeah. You, if you don't believe me, I'm I'm done. Like I can't, like, you know, I'm not coming to you with my concerns and my, if, if I'm scared 
or something, or I think something's up and having you dismiss me. No, sorry. So that, but, but why would she think that this is her family? Hmm. It's not like they're just at a random hotel and these are random people. It's her parents, right. And her brother and, and you know, so no, she's like, yeah, that, and she acknowledges when her dad is acting weird and saying weird things. She's like, he's never said that. It's so weird. Does he have an off switch? Like, Oh my God, you know, just over it. She's so over it. Right. So there were a lot of really good things that made this work, you know, for me this time around. It's, I don't think it's something that I would go to, you know, every year I'll watch every year, but I think especially as, as Jordan Peele's first feature, as far as I know, is his first feature. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really well written, really well directed. Cinematography was great. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on that and, and your notes on that as well. And the visual sunken of the visual of the sunken place was fantastic. It was perfect. That's exactly what I would picture a sunken place feeling like. You still have your body. You still are yourself. You just can do nothing. You are hovering. And you can't reach this thing that's getting farther away. Right? And then they close his eyes. And then the light goes away. Just really, really well done on the visual aspect of that. Which then leads to that really cool scene that you just you just played of them talking about oh now you're going to live in the sunken place this is where you will be for the rest of your life my life whatever it might be uh yeah so and then the 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 whole ending from that scene on is really entertaining i think that they do a really well really good job of of setting up okay, now I'm ready for something to happen. You know, I've seen all this stuff. Now I'm ready for something to happen. And all the things that you want to happen, happen so, like they just <laughs> give you this sense of closure and a fulfillment. The guy who is going to be inside Chris that was just speaking on the, the camera, I forget his name, but he, his head is off. Like his skull is off. And then, and then the doctor gets killed. And what's going to happen when that guy wakes up he's going to wake up at some point <laughs> oh, well i guess you know the fire oh, he'll true. probably die before that yeah. but uh but pretty much everyone is toast right and then finally she gets she, yeah anyway i'm not going to walk through the whole film but i think it, i felt really good at the end but i did ask a, a question of like wait a minute he's fleeing the scene of a multiple homicide and a, and a, and an arson uh so people had to know he was there you know that would that would be get out too i guess maybe <laughs> i don't know because they also did their best to hide the fact that he was there uh-huh, uh-huh. you know that's like, true that's they true. didn't let the cops see the his license and they were doing their best to make sure nobody knew where he actually was that's um, a very good point that's so, a very good point and the only reason why anybody you know knew he was there is because he called his friend yeah so anyway yeah so i i i enjoyed it yeah I thought it I'd, very much on the par for what I expect from Blumhouse too. Hmm. It's like, it's not going to destroy me. Right. But it is going to make me think and it is going to affect me in the moment. Right. I'm, it might not live with me for, you know, a week or anything afterwards, but it's really entertaining. It's really good storytelling, really good acting, really good directing and interesting to say the least. It does make, does make you think so well done. I would say hundred um, percent. Yeah. Same. I mean, I, I 
like it a lot. I love it. I think, you know, it, the the best way to probably have seen this movie is before anyone else had seen it. Like if this, mm-hmm. if you'd been fortunate enough to actually go and catch this on opening weekend or opening night, then you probably have a little bit better experience with because after that, the hype machine was in overdrive. And so walking into a movie that's like the best thing ever made, that's a little intense. Like I don't keep up with IMDb ratings or Rotten Tomatoes or whatever else is out there. Metacritic. Like I never look at any of that stuff. I could care less, you know, what any of that stuff is rated. But when people start saying it's the first movie ever rated, you know, 99% or 100% or whatever it was on Rotten Tomatoes, you start building this expectation that, like, oh, you need to come and be a nearly perfect movie. And for all intents and purposes, it kind of is in, in what it's trying to do and how it's executed and um, the, the cleverness uh, of the writing. But you can't also go in expecting like, oh, you're the strongest man in the world. You're, you're going to lift all the weights. And then they lift all the weights. And you're like, yeah, that's what I thought. Like it, it, all you can do at that point is just kind of set, you know, live up to the expectation um, but you can't really exceed it. And the nice thing about yeah. watching something without any prior expectations is it can blow your expectations out of the water. And so I saw it maybe, you know, a couple, two or three weeks after it had already come out. Of course, I I enjoyed it. I like it. I think there's just so many beautiful ideas. And I think the the setups are really good. They have all these really good, more and more, especially with the, this kind of mystery. I love these, I don't I just call them WTF moments, uh, at least lately. That's what I've been calling them. These moments of what is going on, right? Um, and before the reveal, they have all these really creepy, weird ones. Some of them make them into the trailer, like the caretaker, right? Sprinting at us. We don't know that's grandpa yet, but we just see sprinting at us in the middle of the night and then sprinting away. <laughs> You're just like, oh no, what is happening? Georgina, that whole no scene in the in the bedroom, creepy and she's got these tears springing out and then you you drop into the sunken place and it does not tie together at all it's not like oh okay the sunken place i get it i know where this movie's headed now like no you're just still in this like crazy chaotic what is going on i don't understand any of this and i can't stop watching i need answers um and that's such a cool place to put an audience member whenever you keep throwing out this wild, crazy stuff that does eventually all tie together, but you make them wait for it. You keep introducing weirder stuff and it gets weirder and weirder, right? When he goes upstairs in the middle of that party and then everyone stops and they're oh listening my gosh. Yeah. And, and they're watching. You're just like, are these real people? Are they robots? Uh-huh. Like you're, you're just trying to figure out, you know, you're trying to get ahead of Jordan Peele. And you can't, you know, it's yeah. just, it's just really well executed. And Rod Williams, as you were saying, um, is obviously comedic relief. And you're right, like does a great job of creating exposition as well as Mr. X, right? Yes. Yes. He sets us up with this. Uh, she's hypnotizing. She's brainwashing people and turning them into sex slaves. And so he introduces the idea of hypnosis being used for evil, which is ultimately true. But he also delivers it alongside this hilarious and obviously wrong way, right? There's no chance that you just don't get that vibe at all. Um, And so it's he's a really well-done character and becomes the obvious kind of deus ex machina. My only problem with him and really my only problem in this whole film is 
the use of <laughs> this is such a west problem so don't don't oh, don't at me but the fact that they're putting like this smiley happy face on tsa i i loathe oh, yes. <laughs> the, the tsa it's such a corruption of our i don't know constitutional rights like i really have really big issues with the whole airport security theater and the the, the reduction of our fourth amendment rights all that kind of stuff and I get why he had to use him, right? You can't make him a cop um, because he's too silly to be taken seriously as a cop. We don't take this, and this is part of my problem. It's like, we don't even take the TSA seriously. And so, of course, you know, the cops are going to take him seriously, but he also needs to have a vehicle with these lights on that kind of emulates a cop car. That way, whenever he shows up at the end, you get this brief moment of, oh, no, he's he's the victim, and now he's about to be, um, you know, Mm-hmm. blamed for everything and he's going to get shot and so you create this moment where we hold our breath before you reveal oh it's rod we're good everything's good and it's a really great and well-executed moment that i don't think can work without making him tsa um, or at least not work as well i don't know uh it, yeah it, it, it definitely drives me nuts but that aside I mean, what it, else would they make him I mean, you could have made him like a a rookie beat cop or something, and he's just a a bit still ridiculous and silly. Uh, You don't have all the little TSA catch lines, um, which, again, to me is part of the problem. I just really have a a visceral (laughs) reaction to that kind of stuff. But it is genius. And, you know, they do so many great other things in the writing. I mean, on the setup going in, I guess, just touching on story and writing. Social horror is a really fun genre, and this isn't the first social horror film, right? You have Stuff for Wives and other ones, Body Snatchers probably. I mean, there, there's there's a pretty good history of social horror, but the idea is that you're going to use societal issues and tensions as a basis for horror, right? And specifically, Get Out is using racial issues and the taboos and potential problems with interracial dating. Whenever he's frustrated with Georgina, unplugging his phone he has this conversation with rose and she's like oh georgina has a problem with us and he's like yeah it's a thing you don't get it like you you don't understand the community and um so depending on your perspective and how much you understand the things not said can really add a lot to that social element um that he's drawing on and of course you know along with interracial dating you're you have all these other tense moments, meeting the family and the cultural differences. Life experiences are very different. Language differences, how we like there's a moment at the beginning of the film when he meets the dad. And, you know, he, there's this little joke that Chris apologizes to Rose about something. Um, and Dean, uh, the father is like, boy." like even just using the word boy right there could be you could draw more racial tension out of that, right? Mm-hmm. White man saying boy to a black man, not good. You better, you know, you you are creating things that you don't even know, you're not even aware of, right? Depending on your life experiences again. And so they're, they're playing with a lot of that kind of stuff and naturally interacting with someone of a different racial background. And that's kind of the cool thing about this film is, yeah, this is specifically about black and white, but if you're talking about social horror, you could really sub in any two group of races and have a whole new conversation. Like if you made this movie about, you know, uh, 
not well Palestine and Israel for sure, but uh, I was thinking uh, Pakistanis and Indians, right? These are two different nationalities that have major conflict. And you start talking about one using the other. And there's a lot of history throughout the world that you can use for social horror purposes, especially, you know, based in and rooted in race, British and Indians even. And so there's a lot of interesting things you can do with that. And of course, this movie has just gobs and gobs of metaphors and symbolism, right? And there's, and that's kind of the fun thing about this is that there's many ways to interpret the story because they don't really ever explain the metaphor. They don't mm -hmm. lay out like this represents this. Um, instead, you can kind of insert a lot of different things, right? Whether it's slavery, objectification of the black body, and there's even like the left co-opting the black community, right? These were not conservatives, right? They were, they were all liberal. I would have voted for Obama again. I love Tiger Woods, right? Mm -hmm. They're all kind of uh, uh, virtue signaling how much they are a friend to black people and how not racist they are. And with that, you know, there's commentary about interracial fake kindness and ulterior motives, right? White people pretending to be inclusive when they really harbor other uh, ideas and thoughts. And so there's just gobs of that stuff that you can pull out. And again, I'll, I'm not even going to link it literally Google get out symbolism. And I'm sure that'll bring up a thousand articles um, with a lot of really interesting genius symbolism that Peel was just inserting all throughout the film. Um, but that's kind of one of the things that makes this so good is that it's, it is a great rewatchability factor, right? The repeat viewings are very rewarding. It reveals deeper intentions and the grooming that's buried in the scenes, right? Why is she protecting him from the cop? You know, the first time you watch it, obviously you're mm -hmm. thinking that's his girlfriend way to go. She is, she's not racist. She's on our side, which of course makes the reveal at the end so much better. Every time you believe she's sticking up for him when in fact, right, she's trying to keep him off the map um, and not make sure he pops up anywhere. Why are they so concerned about his smoking? How did your mom die? Right. Is there a history of illness in the family that they might be inquiring about? Why don't they want the brother to wrestle with them? You know, on first view, it's like, Hey, stop stop being mean to our guest on second view. You're like, Oh, they don't want to damage his body because they're trying to take it. And the party, right. The whole party itself, all the questions and interrogations. And then uh, later on, right. It's more like a slave auction. He's being measured up and asked about his experiences as a black person. What's it going to be like to walk around in his body? I really like golf. Do you like golf? Because we're going to retain your, your mm -hmm. motor functions. And I want to make sure that you got a good stroke, you know, Tell me just, your swing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the, the rewatchability factor is just absolutely off the charts. Um, and it's, it's hard not to love it for that. Uh, on a, another writing level, the naming conventions I thought are great. Um, and they're simple. I, I I'm not going to belabor this one, but, uh, the last name Armitage, um, I had to look up. It means it's like a French derivative, uh, of hermit one who lives in solitude or retired from society. Um, and so Armitage is a great name for someone who's going to, uh, you know, isolate you and also cohabit with you in solitude um, and retire you from society. And so, mm. and then the mom's name is Missy, right? Which I think is a bit of a, uh, I don't know, play on missing, right? Missing persons. Rose, every rose has its thorn. Dean, the father is the ringleader, like a dean of a school maybe. I have no idea what Jeremy is supposed to uh, be. I have no idea if someone has an idea. Very white name. It's just a white name. Uh, <laughs> just a white name. <laughs> um, and then 
going back to the brother, like damaging. And he has this great little moment early in the film where he's like, jujitsu is chess, right? You're seeing three moves ahead. And then if you flash forward to the end of the film, whenever he's got Chris in a headlock and Chris is trying to escape, there's this little moment that crosses Chris's face. And now he's thinking three moves ahead. And so what does he do? He grabs the door because he knows he's going to kick the door. And he does. He kicks the door. And that opens his leg up to being stabbed by Chris. And so you can see that little writing setup was initiated, you know, two acts earlier. And so it's just a really complete. There's all these little tiny details that connect um, and make a bigger dots. And I think you could probably look at the script level and start to see all the things that he was setting up and how satisfying it is. Even if you don't notice it, like there's these little satisfying things that are there for uh, anyone who wants to, you know, put the time and effort in. There is one thing that I was like, I don't know, but ultimately it didn't really matter, which is a, a bit of the timeline. Time kind of gets lost, right? Um, it, it loses order a little bit for me after Chris is knocked out. And, you know, whenever he's on the phone with Rod and Chris gets uh, whatever taken over and we cut to Rod after he's, he's knocked out in the, in the living room after the big reveal of Rose is no longer on his side. And then we cut to Rod and Rod experiences an entire day, right? He calls Chris during work. He goes to Chris's house. He Googles around, discovers Dre is gone or whatever. And then Chris wakes up watches a video and he's knocked out again. Then we start another day with Rod and he's talking to the detectives. And ultimately I think they justify it well enough, right. In the story with that conversation that we heard at the beginning of this uh, episode with uh, Stephen Root's character, uh, Jim Hudson, where he's like, this is a psychological pre-op. And so he's kind of setting up the idea that time is passing because we're doing some other pre-op stuff. Uh, it's, it's kind of weak, but because of how strong the story is and how much you're just in the moment, it ultimately is not a problem. And that's one of the cool things about telling a very good story is you can get away with some of these elements if you're keeping the audience engaged and if you have something for these other characters to do. Uh, it doesn't really matter. I think it was more important to establish Rod is worried and Rod is wasting feels like he's wasting time and that he's losing time um, and that he's trying to do everything he can um, because that's ultimately what we want as an audience to see is his best friend trying to help him like mm -hmm. you you're suspecting something and if you're just sitting around in your hands we're not going to forgive that we're going to get upset with the movie um, and so we need to see him being proactive and it ultimately pays off of course with that final scene switching to cinematography jeez i have so many things i'll, I'll try to just scrub through it but okay we start on a wonder and my god like it's simple but it's excellent like it's this big long shot right where we open on this empty frame and then andre enters right uh andre logan king um played by lakeith stanfield and so he enters a frame and then we start rotating to track new information and so we open on nothing dre enters a frame and we track him until a car enters the frame and then we start rotating around to keep them both in the frame as we're watching the car turn around and we have this sinking feeling like, Oh no, something's going to happen. Um, and then of course Dre turns around and we track him while losing sight of the car until Dre turns around again to find that it stopped the doors open. And then we turn a little bit more to reveal he's being assaulted. And so it's just a really amazing use of a wonder to create tension 
by revealing and withholding information to build a visual story with a beginning, middle, and an end, right? We start with an empty street. Dre enters, has this conversation about how creepy this neighborhood is. The car enters, Dre's kidnapped, and then we're left once again with an empty street. It, it tells a very strong, complete story all in the span of like two or three minutes. Like it is in and out and and very strong way to, to you know, have a cold open. And then we kick off the, uh, the, the credits and the title sequence. Perfect. Uh, the camera work largely is, you know, simple and perfect. It's very mechanic. There's two different things happening, handheld and also a lot of locked off and dolly shots. And they tend to be very mechanical when dealing with the family or when we're caught in its trap, right? So there's a lot of tracking and smooth shots, lots of locked off angles without movement, which is to say we're on rails. We can't stop what's happening. It's assured. It's steady. We're locked in. There's an unwavering plan that's in motion. Whereas whenever we're with Rod or Chris, we're often, not always, um, like when Rod is in the uh, uh, police station, we're back on sticks, we're locked off. This scene is not going to help us, right? We're not breaking out. We're not progressing. We're still on rails. We're not changing our destiny. But often they, they are also handheld. Rod and Chris are, you know, uh, uncontrolled, right? There's freedom of movement. Some of the camera work is imprecise as the camera is kind of searching for the frame sometimes as they're bobbing up and down. And um, especially Rod, right? He's a, he's a physical actor. And so he can be very movement heavy. And that pairs very well with that idea, right? And also we get handheld when the family's plan breaks from its path. So when Chris escapes and we're seeing handheld while following the dad into the hallway, right? The dad's in the surgery room and he's calling for his son. He's not answering and then he, he starts walking to the hallway. We're suddenly handheld. We're free now. We can do and be unpredictable. And of course, that's when he gets stabbed through the entire body with antlers. <laughs> the antlers. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, of course, uh, in, in another part of the film, when Dre is flashed, right? Chris takes out his phone. He tries to sneak a photo of this guy. Whenever he's flashed, he kind of wakes up. We're back in the handheld again, right? He's free. He's, he's unrestricted. He's got his body back. Um, and so you can watch the camera language in this movie and they're telling a story there as well. And they make use of, you know, at one point with that Georgina scene, they make really good use of a wide angle close up, right? She's center framed. It's very awkward and strange. And there's this kind of slight visual distortion from the optics of having a very wide angle with someone very close to it. Uh, it's unnerving uh, because her her face is kind of disproportionate now uh, based on the optical effects of wide angle mm -hmm. lenses in, in that close up of a manner. Um, and I love that. It's a really great use of that to kind of create this estranged feeling from reality. They also, during that flash scene with Andre, uh, that eye light effect is fantastic. It's a great, huge eye light to create a visual effect of the hypnosis leaving. Right. And to me now, I don't know what they did on set, but to me, it looks like a practical effect. It looks like a practical effect to me. Um, it looks like they have a big bounce card that they slowly pull away to let it recede in his eye. Um, now, it could have been a visual effect. They could have just said, oh, this would be easier um, to do in post. But I wouldn't be surprised if they did it practically. Mm -hmm. I think there's something very satisfying about that. In that case, you wouldn't want the eye light, uh, especially if you're using like a bounce card. 
to be pure white. You don't want a beadboard when you're doing that, right? A beadboard is like styrofoam, this really hardened styrofoam um, that doesn't lose any light. Instead, you probably want a very soft white bounce um, that you can see through. Maybe, you know, it's uh, just a quarter stop silk and that way you're not pushing light into his face. That's what you don't mm-hmm. want. You don't want to feel the rest of the uh, the light shifting around his face. Instead, you just want to see the effect in his eye. And so you get something very translucent. Uh, that way you can get the look in his eye without messing with the lighting on his face. Um, and if I had to- and and mm-hmm. it could be probably small too, and you just get close, right? Because the because you catch less light, and really you're just trying to direct it into their eyes instead of like their whole self. So like. I'm probably something, you know, like a two by two or something. And you just hold it pretty close because that shot is really close in, right? Yeah, we are pretty close. But we also, from what I remember, we move around him a little bit. Mm. And so whenever you have a camera that's going to cut into your your frame, you probably need something bigger. Gotcha. And that if you're like four or five feet away. Mm. But again, they could have done that, you know, in post. But uh, that's something I personally would have wanted to mess with on set because that's a much more satisfying. I don't know. Oh, yeah. You oh know, yeah, I want to see it. I want to see it in the monitor. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sunken place. We can talk about that for a second. Brilliant. My God. And what I there's so many things I love about it. For one, it's a very easy visual effect to pull off. Right. Like you know, you don't really do much. You can either one green screen it or blue screen it, or you can really just put a big black backdrop in front of them. Maybe maybe even like half of a room curtain that kind of surrounds him and now he's on wires wire rigging that's probably one of the easiest effects to pull off in the world uh, and then the rest is just you know plopping uh opening up whatever after effects or <laughs> whatever they're using and throwing the the, the tv monitor on, on the background and add some little cool blurry visual effects and you're done like it's just performance shoot it in slow-mo to give this feeling of helplessness um, suspend them, have them move around a little bit. Freaking genius. But the reason I really love it, other than it's just a very specific, strong, unique look, is that on a story level, it shows something that is usually impossible to show, or at least is usually poorly handled, right? Which is an internal struggle. Anytime you see someone having this mental battle, whether that's possession or hypnosis, like you're usually reduced to pure performance and you're just relying on your actor, maybe um, sound effects uh, and the, the scene itself to kind of build up and play out how people react to you. You're relying on all these external factors. That's maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And to be honest, it's usually like 30% of the time it works and 70% of the time it doesn't. Uh, we've certainly talked about that in past episodes when I was like, man, this is not working. Um, this is very weak, but instead they built a visual effect to kind of deliver the issue and what he's actually experiencing and what it's going to be like for his life. What a brilliant idea and absolutely perfect execution. Uh, beyond that great general use of close-up detail shots, right? Characters making observations. And so we're going to do a close-up to see what they see. Right. Chris notices the mom as she's drinking tea and taps her spoon on the glass, which is not the last time we're going to see that. Right. So he notices this thing. And then, of course, immediately after mom notices 
Chris is anxious tapping on the table. And of course, there's a close up on his fingers tapping the table. And she comments and that invokes this whole conversation about his cigarette habit and smoking. And then even beyond that, like there's a lot of lingering shots, long holds. Fantastic. We see the mounted deer for several beats whenever he's uh, tied up in that room. We hold on that for ages and almost nothing else is in the frame, right? They clean the frame out and you have to do this. If you want to draw focus to something, make sure you're drawing focus to that by also not distracting the frame with other stuff in it. They didn't frame like a thousand deer. They framed one big one with these huge antlers and we just sit on it for several beats before we finally uh, tilt down to, to look at Chris and tied up in the chair. And you want to establish that thing and make sure the audience sees it. And they cut to another shot of it later on this close up of the, the deer from Chris's point of view. And we need to firmly establish that because it's also going to become a weapon. And so make sure they, they did a fantastic job of never wasting close ups or detail shots. Um, whenever he's, tied again to the armchair and we hold on the armchair stuffing right as he lowers his head into the frame as he's looking and pulling out the stuffing of the armchair we see there's an idea forming in chris's mind he literally has to do nothing other than duck down into the frame and just kind of stare at the stuffing and then later when someone uh generally when someone sees something creepy or interesting we watch the reaction for a few beats before we see what they see right? Which allows creepy music to play. It primes us for seeing something significant so that we'll notice it that much more and log it in our, our mental catalog, right? So when Rod is Googling something on his computer and he gets wide-eyed, we hold on him for a bit, cue the music. And then we cut to reveal what he's looking at, which is Dre is in fact missing. And so it's just a really smart, simple way to not waste close-ups some film and it just depends on the kind of film you're making but whenever you want to add significance that also means you don't add a bunch of insignificant close-up shots if you want those things to stand out and so it's being mindful of everything you're doing because if you're trying to use it to to hide a bad performance or to cut around different takes and you don't want to do that you need to know that on the day so that you're actually getting what you want in those mediums in those wides uh, so that you're not adding unnecessary cuts to your sequences because that that'll it'll impact it i'm not going to say it's going to ruin your movie but it'll certainly make an impact that you're you're not trying to make also good use of establishing shots right uh to reset a scene chris gets the reveal of the whole game plan through the tv the scene ends with him looking at the chair stuffing as he's pulling it out and then we cut very briefly to an establishing shot of the house which resets time before going right back into him, right? We go right back into that scene with him being hypnotized. And this little edit, this passing of time allows us to not see Chris Hatch's escape plan. And it leaves us in suspense for how he's going to escape. How the hell is chair stuffing going to help this guy get out of this predicament? Mm -hmm. What an insane, like, I have no idea what that means. Now, some people might have put it together like, oh, yeah, he's 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 figured it out. But probably that's just a very small fraction of people because you don't know what they're going to do next. You don't know that they're going to hypnotize them again in order to get them into compliance. For all you know, they're going to go in there and gas them and you know right. put them under, which would probably be the, the smarter way to go. But when you have a hack, when you have a life hack, why not use it? That's their mind, mindset, right? Let, yeah. Hey, 
Yeah. We got to wait for this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, last note on cinematography, I guess, is the violence. I didn't think was gratuitous, which is, you know, for a horror film, not always the case. Uh, they have really quick cuts to get the point across. And then generally we kind of watch reaction shots to feel the violence rather than sit in the blood and gore, right? Even when the, uh, the caretaker shoots his head off, right? Uh, with the shotgun, like that's bang, bang. We're very quick. Um, we only get a brief idea of it before cutting to Chris to kind of see how he's reacting to someone like taking their own life in front of him. And I, I really appreciate that. And I think that's a, uh, that's a way to go about looking at horror as more than just gross out horror it's emotional horror he's trying to make an imprint psychologically not just you know make you grimace at what you just saw instead let's make people feel it yeah yeah and so last thoughts are on the performance daniel kaluuya i think he just keeps getting better and better um i if you go and watch any of his recent films Dang it. Oh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, you can see that he's just an excellent actor and he keeps delivering. But in here, a lot of what he's doing is reacting, observing, very restrained, small movements. And he does a really good job of filling in moments because it's it's one thing to say, I'm just going to react to people around me. But when the camera's on you, you have this instinct to want to be doing something. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the right thing to do is nothing. It's just to watch someone. But whenever it's now your turn to respond, how do you respond? And so he fills in moments sometimes with a glance, right? Uh, he might be looking away and then Rose says something and he looks at her for a beat before looking away again, nods, right? And he does a really good job of reacting to his environment, which is hiding discomfort, which we notice we're you know, perfect in our ability, you know, humanity in general is excellent in our ability to pick up and, and, you know, other people's discomfort, especially as a movie audience, we're trained to watch people and how they're reacting, responding to things. And so he's got all this emotional conflict all over his face. And so a smile, his smile is usually not a real smile, right? And we know that we know that he's just smiling to get along and try to put other people at ease, right? That that's a commentary itself on the black experience in America is black people trying to make white people comfortable. And that this entire movie is about that. This entire movie is about him trying to make the white people he's around feel comfortable with his presence, which is insane. Um, let alone before you even factor in the idea that uh, they're trying to, you know, make him feel comfortable. There's this very crazy dynamic going on because they also want him to feel at ease so that they could take advantage of him. And yeah, so there's a lot that he's doing. And I think if you just kind of watch him, even whenever, if he's in a two shot, which he's not often in two shots, they usually isolate him into his own frame. Uh, very often. Uh, not always. Sometimes he's in a two shot with Rose, but generally they, they isolate him because he is isolated. They they do a lot of two shots and wide shots with these other characters. Um, but when it comes to him, they isolate him from the rest of everyone in there, uh, which gives him an opportunity to do whatever he wants to do. And I think the thing to take away from watching him is that he does an excellent job of staying in the scene with his partners. He focuses on them. He's not focusing on his performance. He's just reacting to them. And as a, especially as a new actor, your temptation is to be aware of the camera and perform for the camera. And you can't do that. 
you got to you got to be 100% focused on the person you're talking to in the scene. And if you're not, uh, that's how those little fake gestures kind of creep out into your performance. It's because you 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 think the camera wants to see a thing. You think the camera wants to see you raise your eyebrows. And so instead of like this little micro gesture, it, you know, your eyebrow eyebrow hits the, the top of your hairline. Like you don't need to overdo it. And if you'll just sit in the scene with your scene partner, you'll give the camera everything that it wants. And the more practice you get, the more, you know, based on how far away the camera is from you, the the more or less that you can get away with. Like if you're on a close up, which we often are with uh, Daniel Kaluuya, you don't really need to do anything. That stuff is just going to creep out. It's just going to pop out because you're a human being walking and talking to other human beings. Um, and you're, you're feeling things as they're saying it. Um, and so the less you try to do in those close-ups, the better you're going to, you're going to actually uh, express yourself and how you're actually feeling to the camera. What's important is that you're actually focused on, uh, what people are saying to you. Um, and, and that's it literally on those, you know, close-ups, extreme close-ups do nothing but focus on what people are saying to you. Now, whenever you get to these mediums, you can start to, you know, feel your body a little bit more. Um, how, like if you're on a, a medium where it's at your waist to the top of your head, now you can start to think about your expressiveness with your hands and gesturing. And, and there's a lot more you can start to play with there, but still I think restraining is best just depending on everything, right? Your character, are you the, are you the comic relief, right? Rod, little Ro Howery, he's all over the place. That dude is animated and it only really works because of how stoic, you know, Chris is. He's so composed, right? And 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 mindful uh, because that's what his character is experiencing. His character is experiencing life uh, as a black person surrounded by white people. And and for that, no sudden movements. Don't don't scare don't scare the white people. Um, and and so it's just it's he's doing a very subtle clinic in this film um which i don't think you always get in horror films and and i think most of the horror films that we probably cover you do uh but horror films writ large you don't Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and nowhere is that more it's such a great such a great point but nowhere is that more evident than in the party scenes where he's reacting to the to all the comments of the the white people especially the woman who like feels his arm I remember that that moment in particular was like so awkward for me watching it. I was like, oh my God, this is crazy. And his reaction is is like brilliant. It's it's subtle, but it's very it's very to the point of like I'm making I'm making this known to my girlfriend standing next to me that this is very uncomfortable. I'm not letting you get away with it without feeling that, but I'm not going to get angry or upset because I'm here as a guest and I'm trying to be, you know, not scare the white people essentially. (laughs) Uh, uh, But he does that with, with everyone, you know, and even to the point where the, the one guy who said, you know, what black is in now. And then he just said, I'm going to go take some pictures and just like walked away, you know, was just, it was just flawless. Like his reactions were, cause you could, you're right. He didn't do a whole lot. He just kind of like allowed to happen to him and then whatever kind of like came out of him just felt like it was pretty natural. Yeah. And maybe my favorite part of his performance was the hypnosis. That first time he gets in the chair. Oh my gosh. And he locks his eyes on her and it, and he never blinks. Right. He never looks away. 
And it's so good because we feel his discomfort in his voice and in his mouth, his facial tics, um, as he's trying his best to to not break apart as he's discussing the, his trauma, right? His mom and him as a kid, a helpless kid feeling responsible for something that happened out of his control um, to, his, to his mom. And so we're seeing this crazy mix of he's focused, but very discomforted. You know, he's, he's very uncomfortable and um, he's, he's struggling to move. And it finally kind of culminates towards the end of that little sequence of I, I can't move. Why can't I move? And she says, you're paralyzed. Now sink into the floor. Wait, no, 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 sink, sink, right? And it's just a great, that whole scene is absolutely fantastic. If you listen to the sound design, the rain creeps in before we actually flash back to him hearing the rain. Uh, the lighting blue feels like this really great use of uh, danger, like helplessness, loss of control. They use blue in this very specific way, um, even in this flashback of the dead deer. And so they just very constantly figure out ways not just to visually communicate something, but rely on Daniel Kaluuya to bring some serious heat. Now, I would love to hear what those conversations were like between him and, and Jordan Peele, because part of me is wondering how hands-off Jordan is being in that in that moment versus giving him an idea like, hey, try this, do do this, and, and see how that feels. And then you start to dial in, and you're seeing someone be hypnotized. And as an audience member, you're buying into it. You're like, something is wrong. And it's just this steady ramp up of uh, disease as he's, uh, uh, you know, taken advantage of. It's yeah, God, genius. It's um, amazing. And his just ability to cry like, like elephant tears. I mean, they're the biggest tears I've ever seen in any scene of any movie that I've ever seen, you know, like they're gigantic and they just keep coming. It's a literal waterfall. It's unbelievable. I I yeah, I wonder if he relied. So there's a uh, a really old acting technique where and he pull out his pubes, right? Yeah, right. You just yank your Joey, pubes. right? Oh, Joey, yeah. I just start yanking. <laughs> you start yanking. Uh, where you don't blink, where you just not blinking, you know, begins to sting your eyes and your your tear ducts well up in order to try to protect your eyes. Um, and so it's just a very simple way to get yourself to cry. If it and he could have used that, that would have been. I know he's the kind of performer that doesn't need to do that. But at the same time, the scene is calling for that. So I imagine they were so big because of both reasons. He's talented enough to call upon that emotion. And he's also has, has his eyes wide open. Um, and so those two things are probably working yeah. uh, in conjunction uh, to, to really just pour it on. My God, that's painful. It is. It's it painful. sucks. But uh, yeah. when it, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Just, just start yeah. yanking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that's all I really got. I think, again, this this movie is just, it's brilliant. It's so smart and so articulate. Just, just kidding. The one's for our, for our black audience. Um, it's, you know, very old racialized terminology uh, for white mm -hmm. people who are really surprised by black people who, who can speak well. Um, don't ever say that white folks. Um, so I, yeah, man, I think the more I watch this, the more impressed I am. I'm just like freaking a, your first movie out of the box is like an iconic classic that's going to stand up 50 years from now people will yeah. still be watching this movie 
Um, it's up there with the, the Citizen Canes and Six Senses and whatever else. Like, it's just a very genius, freaking genius. And so, yeah. Um, yeah, that's all I got, man. What? Um, Love it. Any last thoughts or do you want to tell me what you're recommending this week? No, I don't have anything else. But I think, I mean, anything that I wanted to add, I think you added in your notes. It's really, really great points. I totally agree on all of it. Yeah, we can start with recommend- recommendations. Next week, I'm going to go completely opposite. And I can't believe I haven't recommended this before. I mean, maybe we talked about it at some point, but I just never got to it. Um, uh, I'm going to recommend ne- Yesterday, which I know is a music film, but it's The Beatles. And so it's not it's not like somebody who's writing some random songs that, you know, performing these random songs nobody's ever heard and and uh, whatever. It's It's a very interesting take. Uh, on something that that a long time ago, one of my best friends, not my best friend Wes, you're my best friend, one of my best <laughs> friends, um, said uh, said I wonder what the world is like for Radiohead because they they live in a world without Radiohead, and it blew my mind. It like really it broke me. It it made me think, oh my god, you know, like I'm making music because I have, you know. Because because I have Radiohead and because I have U2 and because I have uh, Led Zeppelin and Muse and and all of these bands that I love, but they're making music without, U2 is making music without Joshua Tree. They made Joshua Tree without Joshua Tree. And that really melted my brain <laughs> in, in a really unique way. And, um, and yesterday's like kind of hit home for me in that regard because it's the idea of, it, what if the Beatles didn't exist, and, but somebody wrote all their songs or somebody performed all their songs? Like what would happen, right? And it was, it's really well done. I thought it was really well acted and, and, and it's actually just fun. It's just fun to see, uh, one, these songs who, that are amazing, iconic songs performed in like this modern day kind of uh, vibe, but two, that we don't see George and Paul and Ringo and and they're not a part of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's just and nobody knows about them. It's just like really really smart and cool and creative and I enjoyed it a lot. And quick fun little fact, apparently and I just heard this, apparently Paul and John, you know, they're obviously the predominant writers of the the Beatles, but everybody wrote. They wrote together from I think it was like 62 to 69. And in those seven years, they wrote, I think, 170 songs. And out of those 170 songs, I think there were like 17 that were number one. That's it. They wrote almost 200 songs and like 10% of them, you know, were were like, you know, the hits. And which was really interesting because it's a, it's a, it turns, it makes it seem like a numbers game in a way. Hmm. You write enough stuff finally something will hit right but you got to write the stuff it was just that's just a little interesting factoid there but anyway long story short yesterday is what i'm going to recommend this week nice i'll cuss on that i mean i really enjoyed it i like danny boyle films in general mm-hmm. but i really like that that lead actor too himesh patel um he's been yeah. in some stuff that i've liked recently he was in don't look up that we covered a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago um and he's also in station 11 which i really enjoyed an hbo series uh, i haven't so- watched that yet is it I enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's, it's a simple show, but it's all about okay. dealing with life after a pandemic, which, you know, we, it's hard to imagine 
we don't really have that kind of uh, experience. <laughs> yeah, no, don't have right. that experience yet. No, maybe one day. Um, but yeah, I really enjoy. I I, okay. I read the book a while back, and so I was really excited about that one. Um, okay. But also like Mackenzie Davis and oh uh, yeah, it's good, really well cast, uh, and it was good to see they took advantage of it. I'm gonna recommend. This was hard because I, I was gonna recommend Atlanta because they have a childish Gambino song at the beginning of this, and Donald Glover is genius. Um, uh, that's his, I don't know, mu- music name. And he, Atlanta, Atlanta season three is about to come out. But after our intro talk, we were, as we were talking about Blumhouse, I was trying to think of other Blumhouse films that I like. And there's one that I've, I don't think I've heard anyone talk. God, I hope I haven't already. Yes. Crap. Never mind. I was going to recommend Sweetheart, but I've already recommended oh, Sweetheart. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, like I said, I'm going to recommend Atlanta. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, there you go. Uh, which also stars Lakeith Stanfield. Um, that was my introduction to him, I think. And he's fantastic. He's hilarious. Uh, there's a lot of really great performances and uh, smart writing. And so if you want something fresh, new um and you like donald glover that's that's the place to go man go watch atlanta i think it's streaming on hulu right now and i think airs on effects i forget where it airs because i i watch it on hulu but yeah season three should be coming out pretty soon and check that out stay tuned next week we're going to be covering a classic this is probably my favorite classic film it's called guess who's coming to dinner uh, with uh, Spencer Tracy and the late Sidney Poitier. And we're going to have a guest host coming on, Clyde, our, our man Clyde. He is, uh, his, we've had his wife on previously, Key, uh, Keyshan. And so they, they have their own podcast and they're a large reason of why the pestle exists. And so I've been itching to have him on. And anytime I think about guess who's coming to dinner, I think about him because he's always got a thousand things to say about it. Um, especially as it relates to Spencer Tracy. And so I think we'll get some good factoids out of him, but also I don't know how often I ever get to hear him just say how, why he likes the movie in, in general. And so um, I'm excited to, to have him on and hear his thoughts on that. Yeah. And so stay tuned for that. If you're enjoying the show, you know, feel free to subscribe, drop us a review on iTunes, leave us a note if there's something you want us to talk about. And if you want to leave a note on this episode uh, to, to point out all the amazing things we missed, then you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash get out. And our quote of the day today is from H.P. Lovecraft. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. I, I love this. And it's, it's really interesting. The other night, my son asked me, he said, Dad, would you rather go to the moon or to the bottom of the ocean? And instantaneously, <laughs> I said the moon. I said, the moon, the moon. And he said, oh, really? Oh, why? I said, I honestly, there's so many things that we don't know about the ocean. There's so many, either way, if something goes wrong, I'm toast in either direction, right? So I think I would rather do it in, in space. But that, that fear of the unknown, I, I feel like we should know more about the ocean than we do. And because we don't, that's scarier to me. Obviously, the universe is vast. And if you go into space, you're not going to go deep space. It's just not going to happen, right? It's like either to the moon or maybe Mars. And that's as far as you're going to go. And between here and there, there's not much. Like nothing's going to eat you, you know, but if something goes wrong, you're toast. But you're going to be toast at the bottom of the ocean as well. But something might eat me down there too. (laughs) 
That's the thing. And that's the unknown that I'm scared of. And I think in movies, they do that really, really well. You know, that's one of the reasons we love movies or we mm. love scary movies is that unknown factor. And we've covered several of them on this podcast that, that we weren't scared because we saw it coming, you know, yeah, like, or because we knew something was coming in even in general, or we knew what it was. It's like, what is that? I have no idea what that is. And, you know, but it's coming at me. Oh my God. Uh, it's that. I don't know what that is and it's coming at me kind of thing. It's just, yeah, it's a great quote. Yeah. And I, I picked it for a couple of reasons. One is that HP Lovecraft, I don't know much about him other than he wrote a bunch of horror books and science fiction, fantasy horror. Um, I think he invented the Cthulhu. If not, he definitely maximized um, his reach <laughs> as a, as a, as a character. But from what I understand, I, he was also like a really big racist, like, uh, and a lot of his stories were symbolic of fear of black people. Again, I don't know. I haven't read any of his stuff. This is uh, secondhand information. And so in that way, I found this quote really interesting. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. The oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And I, I love that because this movie is kind of the exact opposite. It is fear of the known, right? White communities have uh, largely been destructive force on the black body, right? Black people have not fared well when isolated into white communities. Uh, and so this movie is doing the exact opposite. It's taking the fear of the known, the fear of the potential of what can happen to me uh, in this situation, right? C misunderstanding happens cops get called and bad things ensue a lot of things right um how am i even simpler than that am i going to be accepted into this family i love this girl i'm going to meet her family are they going to accept me into this family or, or is this going to be it is this where this romance ends um and so there's a fear of the known that is being taken advantage of by Jordan Peele in the most simple and brilliant way of just the social dynamics at play um, and, and the potential you know, ramifications of that. Uh, and so for all those reasons, I just thought this was a, a I don't know, interesting quote to go to. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. Great job. Great job picking that. Man. Thanks, man. Well, this has been fun. Thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, and please join us next week. We'll be covering guests who's coming to dinner with Clyde. Uh, and that's going to be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to that. Make sure to review us, subscribe, tell us what you'd like to see us cover. We would love to hear from you. Just let us know, you know, uh, who knows? We might cover it. And uh, until next week, I am Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. Mm -hmm.